Hello, welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where leading authors share objects that have inspired their creative process. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and I'm delighted to be joined by lawyer, broadcaster, author, definitely change maker. She's brought about many reforms over her career and won landmark cases, including overturning the convictions of the Guildford Four, one of the UK's biggest miscarriages of justice at the time, amongst many other cases. It's Helena Kennedy, or Baroness Kennedy of the Shores. <laughs> Welcome, Baroness Kennedy of the nice Shores. Nice to see you, Nihal. How do you feel about the Baroness title? I never make a big thing of it, but um, I have to live with the fact that uh, I have one foot in the establishment. Uh, you can't get much more establishment than the House of Lords. I suppose and also heading up in Oxford College. Can, you know, there's a kind of been a collection of uh, high-end establishment positions for somebody who um, sometimes is telling the establishment that they're getting it wrong. We live in times, Helena, where still young girls are told to curb their aspirations. And yet for you, who was telling you that you could do whatever you wanted to do, that you could be whoever you wanted to be? We were a working class family. And when I was young, we lived in a tenement in Glasgow that was two rooms and a kitchen and where there were four kids. And, you know, we were not well off. I was brought up in circumstances where it might seem surprising that my life has taken the turns that it has. But I was brought up by a father who took me every week to the library. But my mother particularly, I mean, always had this sense that, you know, we were never to treat anybody as less than us. You know, you never look down on anybody. But she also felt nobody's better than us. The idea that, you know, that people should be um, kind of worthy of esteem simply because of position rather than because you come to respect them for the, the person they are and the things that they do. So my mother gave us all a very strong sense of our self-worth. I mean, I was brought up in a household in which people were kind of politically aware. My dad was uh, a trade unionist. So he was very interested in the conditions of work and, and employment rights and also interested in the world. So I was brought up to be rather conscious of the world and the injustices that happen to people and our responsibility for each other. We were brought up feeling that we had obligations. Now, part of our uh, modus operandi here on the Penguin podcast is that we ask authors to bring along a handful of objects that have inspired their work. And I see that Helena has brought along a little pile of goodies for us. And we're going to cross-examine all of those in a moment. But before we look at the first of those objects, uh, Helena... Your fight against injustice, you know, you've already framed it in how you were brought up. I mean, it was instilled in you from a young age. And this is the subject of your new book, Eve Was Shamed. Now, it does come 25 years after your first book, Eve Was Framed, also on that subject. And while reading Eve Was Shamed, I, I thought to myself, I wonder how depressing it is 25 years hence, while, of course, in the book you acknowledge the progress that has been made, the distance is still yet to travel. I've spent my life in the law and I've acted for, for women. I've acted probably for many times more men. But acting for women taught me that different judgments apply when it comes to women. And by and large, women don't commit serious crime, yet they end up in prison in significant numbers, usually... They themselves have been victims of all kinds of crime and abuse and, and ghastliness in their lives. It all comes down to still a way in which women are perceived that we have, we're more horrified when women come before the courts accused of crime. 
And so therefore, I think they draw down often sometimes more punitive um, responses or more judgmental responses because they've failed as women. But we also have the thing that when women come with their complaints, you know, saying, I have been raped, I have been abused, I have had, you know, horrible things done to me. The law does not seem to be able to respond adequately. And we have to ask ourselves why. And I have spent the last, you know, 40 years of practicing the law advocating reform. And lots of the reform has taken place, you know. And some of that has undoubtedly made a difference. But the shocking thing is that it really isn't the cure. And the cure is vested in our attitudes. And it is about the way that we see each other as men and women. And indeed, the way even women see themselves as women. So it is, in the end, deeply embedded in us And it's about social attitudes. It's about our cultures. It's about, well, and it's about patriarchal ideas that we've swallowed and and absorbed so deeply into us that it's hard to shake it off. How much of what was contained in Eve was framed reared its ugly head again in Eve was shamed? I had to rename it because it's a new book. And it's a new book because social media has changed things very radically, but also because women have become more confident. Something has happened. The tectonic plates have shifted. Young women are saying, I'm not going to be silent anymore. The whole Me Too thing, you know, really does bring you up short. Because for me, it is a real challenge to the legal system. It's women saying... You've failed us. And it's true that the internet has given them a vehicle. The challenge for me as a lawyer is, is this justice? Do you get more justice for women by reducing justice for men? And that has to be a matter of concern to us all. Well, your answer to that is no in the book, isn't it? And the answer is no. You don't get more justice for women by reducing justice for men. You know, I've looked at law to say... What is it that's there simply because of patriarchy, rules that were made by men um, that don't need to be there and which you know, disadvantage women? But I've also looked at the rules that are for the benefit of us all as a society. And I do not believe that lowering standards of proof is going to be a help to women. I actually think it is going to degrade the system and actually make for greater miscarriages of justice. Now, at the moment... What women are saying is, well, the system's failed and therefore they're using this new tool to name and shame men on the internet. And many of the times it will be absolutely right. However, every so often there'll be somebody who's being unfairly traduced. And we shouldn't be sanguine about that. This is not me coming to the defence of, of you know, poor men. They're, they're all on the back foot now. Um, I think it's, it's, it's good that men are on the back foot and are having to think twice about some of their behaviour and what they might be saying and doing. However, I don't want to see injustice. What tools did you possess, Helena, when you were in your 20s and in your 30s to put men on the back foot who attempted to act in an inappropriate way to you or to you? I don't go along with the very confident, you know, the sort of super women who say, all you had to do was slap a man down and, you know, and, and deal with him. There have been uh, women, you know, they're sort of like paid assassins, you know, who, who are, will go after other women. And there are a number of very successful women who will say, if you haven't got what it takes to put a man down when he's, you know, encroaching upon you, then you haven't got what it takes to be a truly successful barrister or a truly successful woman in the corporate world. 
I don't accept that. You know, when I was in my 20s and when some of these things happened to me that are happening to young women nowadays, I mean, thank God I was never raped. But when men came on to you or behaved inappropriately or ran their hand up your skirt or whatever it was, I wasn't always confident enough to deal with that. What I feel as a woman who's now, you know, the, the end of my career is that why should young women have to put up with this? Why? And we as older women should be coming to their defence in saying enough is enough. These young women are actually being brave. They're not being victims or snowflakes. They're actually being brave in saying we've had enough. We're not going to put up with it. And so men are on their back foot. I mean, in the House of Lords just now, lots of men come up to me and say to me, I like your dress. You're looking very lovely, Helene. And then they say, am I allowed to say that anymore? And you have to say, listen, you know the difference between saying, Helena, I like your dress and, you know, behaving in, a, in an inappropriate way. And the men do know the difference. And if they're on the back foot, all to the good. They're having to think twice. Well, let's talk about your girlfriends because they have uh, supplied you with accessories, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Over the years. It's, it's and very... this, is, this is the first one of your... Uh, Objects that we've got, isn't it? Yeah, I have a great sort of uh, collection of bangles on my on my right wrist. Can you give them a jingle? For I, us? Will, I will, I will, I will. A judge once complained about um, <laughs> my having um, these bangles on my right wrist, and, uh, and and sent a letter to the to the the head of my chambers uh, at the time. And I said to the head of my chambers, "If you dare to suggest that you're going to reprimand me, I will be outraged. If he's got a complaint about me, tell him to address it to me." And that was what he did. But he was um, he was a silly old judge. Anyway, um, but these bangles, what happened was that when I was um, still a student, I was given one by a very close friend. And, uh, and Are you then, wearing that one now? That's yes, I am. It's right. still there. It's this one. And uh, in fact, he was a young gay man, not a woman. Describe um, it for this us. This one here. It's, 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 a, it's, um, it's what's called a torque, a T-O-R-C, in that it doesn't, it's not a complete circle. Um, and it has two sort of, um, sort of, like, like arrow acorns, ends. like acorns at the at the ends of each side of this. And this come from a gay friend, and he was he was a young gay man. Although we at that time, um, he never ever said he was gay. I mean, I knew he was. I was a very good and close friend to him, and he couldn't come out because of the nature of the bar at the time. But the rest were all given to me by girlfriends. I wear them all the time. I wear them in the shower. I wear them to bed at night. I don't take them off. <laughs> Even when I'm being sort of searched at an airport, I say, look, I can't take them all off. And I've got arthritis in my hands now. So um, they usually say, just come and be searched. And I'm, I'm searched rather than take them off. So there you are. When you hear them or look down at them, what does it symbolise seeing these? I feel I feel loved at my friendships, and they're with men and women are really so sustaining to me. And um, I, you, you'll see that the book has been dedicated to new generations of uh, of, of young young women lawyers at, uh, in the profession, because they are the people who are changing things, and they're and they're wonderful. But they, for example, the women in my chambers are just fantastic young women. They keep me on top of what's happening at the bar. You know, some people will say, well, how does Helena know what's going on today? Let me tell you, when you become grand and senior and so on, you can be very deluded into thinking everything's hunky-dory. Um, but when you hear the stories of the young and what they experience in the courts and what their clients are experiencing and the court cases that they're doing, then you really know that we've still got a way to go. You know, uh, you don't get judges anymore saying you've got it coming to you because you've got a short skirt on or any of those things that judges used to say when I was young. But 
there's a subterranean thing. There's something that lives in us all and that we have to address. You know, this woman's not behaved well and why was she drinking and why could you see her breasts and, you know, through that dress or she's exposing too much flesh and all that sort of thing. But we do make these judgments and women make them about other women. One thing you talk about in the book is how juries make decisions based on preconceived notions of how women should behave. I think it's important to say should behave. There's a moment where you talk about domestic abuse victims, for example. Let's have a listen to that extract now. Domestic abuse cuts across all classes, all ethnicities, sexualities, ages and social backgrounds. It can and does happen to anyone, and not all victims will show their trauma in the witness box. In almost every case in which I've been involved, the woman presents herself in a very flat, unemotional way, which can fail to arouse in a judge or a jury a full appreciation of her partner's behaviour towards her. Psychologists describe it as lack of affect. Women are also often so filled with shame at the public exposure of what they see as their private failure that they may minimise the extent of their suffering. Understanding domestic abuse plainly remains a challenge for the courts. To onlookers, the response of the battered woman seems abnormal but to her it is a rational response to her abnormal circumstances. Misconceptions litter the court and are reflected in the verdicts of juries. Women have ample opportunities to leave. In some perverse way they like the pain. No real woman becomes so crushed by her abusive partner that her maternal instinct is extinguished. Continuing to live with the tormentor is seen as a testament to the acceptability of his behaviour. A constant refrain in the questioning is, why did you not leave? This is something the woman herself can never answer coherently. The answers are many and complex. That was Eve Was Shamed, written and read by my guest, Helena Kennedy. Now let's move on to your next object, which is connected to your family, your father specifically, and it's a rosary. I know, and that will surprise lots of people because I'm not one that um, is given to getting down on my knees and seeing the rosary very often. But my father was a very good man, and I was very close to him. I, I, I suppose I was his blue eye, and I, I loved him very, very much, and he died when I was in my 20s. He was very proud that I'd become a barrister. My mother gave me the little leather purse that had his rosaries, and he had them beside him when he died. Perfect, and um uh, I don't know what I did with We're her. having a little search here. We're having a little, for, a little for the search. Pouch. Oh, here it is. There yeah. you go. Yes, it's here. It's a little leather drawstring pouch and his beads are in there. And my father did um, say his prayers. So where would he keep these, Elaine? He would have kept them in his pocket. All the time? Uh, he would have carried them with him, yeah. And so when he was uh, at the hospital, he had them with them. They were actually sort of under his pillow and my mother took them. Um, home with her, and then when I went up for the funeral, she gave them to me. Do you, and so I do you touch them. them every day? No, they sit on my desk, and they're in that little leather purse, um, but they're there. You know, it's just a connection with him, and he was good, and it's a reminder to me to try to be good. <laughs> but not to be God-fearing. So it depends on what you mean by that. I certainly do believe in a sort of way in which the good things that you do for other people it comes back to you. People, people are, I, I, you know, I have been it's the karma. beneficiary of great um, beneficence. I am a, a woman blessed, really. You have had so many achievements in your life, and you've already articulated how close you were to your father. Which are the ones that stand out to you as the ones 
you would have most liked to have talked to him about? I mean, I think he would have liked the fact that I that I was I became a civil liberties human rights lawyer and I did law that mattered and that I cared about acting for, if you like, people who weren't well served by the law. I think he would have loved that. I think that he would just would have been tickled with the idea that I'd ended up in this place which was a place in which Traditionally, folk like us did not have a place. Heart of the establishment. Absolutely. So it would, I think that would have made him maybe been he would have been amused by that. Um, my mother. I mean, of course, like, my mother. Nothing impressed my mother. <laughs> my mother. When my mother came with me to, when I was introduced into the House of Lords, and she was there, and she was there when I became a Queen's Counsel. My mother always felt that her role in life was to keep me firmly rooted in the in you know on the ground and never to sort of lose a sense of what really mattered, you know, don't get too grand. When somebody said to her, you know, how do you feel about your daughter being a lady? Her response was, all my daughters are ladies, I hope. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. She, was, she's, she never gave anything away, you know. <laughs> well, let's move on to that um, beautiful picture of your mother and you, which is your next object. It's a very nice picture, this. I love it because I was being given an honorary degree at one of the Glasgow universities, and my mum came along to it. And we had that photograph taken together. Uh, she was probably about, well, certainly in her late 80s by this time. And she is the most perfect Glasgow granny. Uh, she had 18 grandchildren and a whole set of great-grandchildren and now growing in number all the time, and um, my, my children are producing them too. All of them loved her. She used to play cards with them and would try to beat them. You know, she didn't, it was never a game where she let them win. And so she was a very wonderful woman. She was also, again, somebody just deeply rooted in her community. She did great things. When I was a kid, I do remember her once. A woman came to her and um, my mother brought her in because she was... She lived in our close, that's, you know, in the tenement that we were in. And she was uh, with the son of somebody who lived in close. And she appeared with clearly black eyes and had been beaten by him. And, and I think my mother had heard this going on. And she came in and my mother was consoling her. And I was always that kid who sat in the corner of the room with a book. I was never out playing. I was always reading. And so I would overhear everything. And my mother went into a drawer and she used to secrete money away underneath the paper that she lined drawers with. And she took out whatever bits of money she had and said, go back to your parents and uh, gave her her fare to get out and leave. And I remember it. And I remember her later telling my father um, that the girl had been really battered but she had nothing. She had no, no money at all. And my mother gave her the money, although we had no money, and helped her. And that was the kind of woman she was. And so she sits on my desk and I look at her and I think, that's the stuff that I think we have to keep reminding ourselves about. The story that you told about your mother giving money to that woman, mm. I mean, that's everything anyone ever needs to know about why you chose the career that you did and why you wrote not just Eve was framed, but Eve was shamed as well. It is that sense of injustice has a visceral effect on you. Well, it, it does. And I do know that I went into the, the, the law thinking, well, I was bringing a class perspective. But early on, I realised that the woman bit is a, is a very important piece in all of this and reforming the law to make it 
you know, deliver for everybody. And it's true also on, on ethnic minorities. I mean, on the whole business of black and minority ethnic people, they have not been busy writing the law either in this country. And so much of it has had to be, you know, we've had to hammer home that there's another prism which you have to see law through. And so, um, you know, it's women are the, is the paradigm I'm using in this particular book. Um, but, you know, you can translate it to, to much of the experience of, of men or homosexuals or, you know. Let's move on to your next object, which is a very smooth stone. I love beach walking and finding smooth stones. This one is beautiful and it's black and it's ivory coloured. But I put them in pockets. I like them to be in the pockets of a, of a coat or a jacket. And so that if I'm sitting thinking, I'll put, I'll put my hand in my pocket and I'll turn it and smooth it and turn it in my pocket. And it, it's my way of thinking. You know, It's the kind of almost as if you know, there's something in there that's about the, ter- the smoothing and the turning of something in your hand being something that is sort of meditative. When I'm trying to think of what is it I'm trying to say here, I find it quite useful to be able to smooth a stone. So I have little collections of them all over the place. I have this one sits on my desk, but I have them in coat pockets. And a collection of them in a parlour, you pick one up no. and put it in a coat, or they will, you will find no, them I'll in find your coat. Right. I'll find them in, in my coat pockets and I'll find them. In, and sometimes, you know, uh, and I'll find them in the bottom of a bag and I'll I'll be thrilled. You would think that doing the profession that you do, it's a, a barrister and a very successful one, you have a very clear and focused mind and you're able to compartmentalise different things that you're dealing with. Is that the that, case? That's a different pro- yes, and but that's a different process. This is a sort of much more a ruminative thing where you're saying, OK, if we were trying to change something... How could it be that hasn't been thought of before that might make a difference? That's not necessarily a lawyer thing. Lawyers are not usually the people who are having to imagine reform. Some people say it's not our business to be trying to change the law. I think it is our business because who better than us to say how the law ought to be changed? I interviewed uh, one of the country's most eminent forensic pathologists. and I love forensic pathologists. Oh, They're fantastic. Dr. I've done some Richard of my... Shepherd. Oh, yeah, I know Richard, yeah. Right. He's a wonderful uh, forensic pathologist, yeah. Um, but what was interesting about him was the effect that it had on him, mm-hmm. his psychology yeah. and his mental health. For you yourself, considering that you are faced quite often with some unspeakable things that humans do to each other, yeah. how do you insulate yourself? I really had to learn how to do it because I did find it painful when I was young and I did find it very hard and I would take it home with me and I had to learn. Once I had children of my, of my own, you know, sort of demanding domestic life, I had to make sure that I didn't bring it home. So um, I just learned to be much better at compartmentalising. My husband says that I can kind of completely cut off and concentrate on something I'm doing and almost be oblivious to other things that are going on around me. And that's because as a kid, I was studying at school and all that kind of thing. And we were so crowded and we, you know, there was, we were all in one room, really, the one in the kitchen. I did my homework with noise and the television on and all of that. So I had to learn to be able to close down. And I'm very good at doing that. Um, but I also learned to do it by not letting the emotional stuff grind into the other parts of my life. That's not to say that I always succeed. I mean, there's something particularly horrible about doing cases involving sexual abuse of children. Again, my husband has said, you know, I'm normally a kind of quite 
upbeat person. And the times when I, I've been really low is when I'm dealing with really bad abuse, particularly of children. You know, there's a great professional story, which is, you know, I never allow it to cross my path. I never believe that if you're doing the job well and properly, but you have to find ways of dealing with it. And the best way I can deal with it is by having a very good home life and friendships and and trying to find ways of being kind to myself. Well, a way in which your husband was kind to you <laughs> is with our next object. <laughs> well, this is hard to show because if you see, look, this my husband made me my wedding ring. He made it for me himself. That's so romantic. Oh, no, I know. It's the most I hope my wife thing. never finds out about well, your yeah. husband. Well, I mean, it's the most uh, wonderful thing. And it's because my husband is a maxillofacial surgeon and he reconstructs the face and he does the most incredible work. But in order to do that, he trained both as a doctor and as a dentist. He knows all the dental technicians, you see. And so he went to one of them. He had a wax and he had twisted two strands of wax into a combined ring. And it's very uneven. And you'll see the, some of the twists are close together and some are a bit looser. And he got one of the technicians to make it in gold. And they did it together. And so he made my ring. It's a but beautiful it's, but it's, ring. But it is a very sweet ring. Which you are having trouble. I, I don't think you've taken it off very often. No, I don't take it off at all. And so it's hard for me to get it off. Yeah, you are struggling. Properly. Don't worry, it doesn't need so, to be taken no, off for but it's, uh, the benefit it, of this it's podcast. It's very nice. And so it's a very unusual and individual wedding ring. Well, you've had a, a, an unusual life. I mean, I'm very much my own woman and I'm very independent of a spirit. And that's how I'm seen, for example, in the House of Lords. I don't just troop through the voting lobbies. I really make an effort to find out what it is that the, the issues are and to, to vote according to what I think is the right thing to do. And while my position is essentially left of centre and, and therefore that kind of, you know, usually informs how I, I go, I'm very much my own woman. I don't hang my brain up on a peg with my coat when I go into that place and I don't think anybody should. And I also think that the courts and law is obviously so intertwined with um, what happens in society at large but we're entitled to expect more of it. It's not enough, you see, for us, you know, to say but patriarchy rules, you know, that's the nature of our societies, that's how it is. Law has to do better. And, and we're right to expect higher standards in the law than what might be generally available in society at large. And so it's not enough to say, you know, of course you're going to find racism in the law or sexism in the law. We have to do better. And therefore we have to be much more self-examining and we have to be um, expose ourselves to much more dutiful training about these issues. And I think we should, we're entitled to expect our judges to be more alert and more aware and more sensitive to the ways in which injustice can come from these, sort of, these sorts of prejudicial attitudes. You say we're capable of terrible things unless we speak to our better angels. Who are our better angels? Yeah. Our better angels are about our belief that every human being deserves to be treated with dignity and with respect and that their lives matter and that we should be responsible to each other for ensuring that that's how all of our institutions work. That seems to me pretty fundamental. And when the legal system is not doing that and not being sufficiently respectful of the humanity of individuals, it's falling down. And I think it is falling down still on women. 
Helena Kennedy. Baroness Kennedy of Shorts. Thank you very much. Oh, it was so nice. Thank you. Out now from Penguin Random House Audio. Feminists don't wear pink and other lies. Curated by Scarlett Curtis and including essays from Emma Watson, Jamila Jamil, Kira Knightley and Lolly Adafope, this book asks 52 women what the F word means to them. I didn't know I was a feminist until I was 15. I didn't know I was a feminist because I didn't know I needed to be and I also didn't think I would still be allowed to wear makeup if I became one and I seriously loved makeup. I went to school just like my brothers. My mum had a job just like my dad. Feminism was something that we learned about in history class and didn't have to worry about anymore. Like telegrams or corsets or the plague, feminism was the stuff of suffragettes and burnt bras and fights that had been won and long forgotten. Reese Witherspoon described this book as essays that will illuminate the path for our future leaders. The audiobook is available to download now.